Have you ever been falsely accused of something? You know, when you just knew it wasn't your fault. Maybe it was when you were little and you had brother and sister and you, it was you, you got accused, but you knew it was them and they got away with it. Maybe it was older, maybe it was school. Maybe it was even something quite serious. I watched a programme on Netflix. When Jacob was little, just born, those long evenings with him on my chest, it was called Making a Murderer. It's about the conviction of Stephen Avery. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about it. Stephen Avery lived on a farm in Manitowoc in Wisconsin. He struggled academically. He um, had a recorded IQ of 70. Now, the reason this comes into the story comes out later, but he attended this school that his um, mum called a special elementary school. In 1985, Stephen Avery was convicted of attempted murder and rape and sentenced to 32 years in prison. But something didn't seem right. The victim was an esteemed member of Manitowoc and the Avery family were well known in there for being looked down on because they're a bit simple in how they ran their farm. Now after 18 years in prison, Stephen Avery was fully exonerated for the crime by DNA testing, which got introduced. After many years of external investigation. See, all the way through, the justice system of the county seemed to be deeply flawed. Netflix produced this documentary convinced that they had made him a murderer, outlining all the evidence which suggests that he was wrongly accused. It seemed to be rushed through the whole process. I watched this and my overriding feeling was deep pity and sadness. Stephen Avery appeared, at least by the way that Netflix put it together, to have been convicted completely falsely. He was unable to defend himself. People didn't like him much. Now, I really don't know the definite truth about Stephen Avery. But how do you respond when things aren't fair? When you feel like you deserve more? When you're accused for being arrogant, for saying Jesus is the truth? It's assumed in our passage today that if you follow Jesus, you will be falsely accused. If you follow Jesus in a world that rejects him, the way the world deals with you won't be fair. But the instructions we read detail for us how to maintain a living hope in a society and in situations which will be hard to trust God in. And actually, Peter explains how living with a living hope, as we've seen through this series, and living particularly in this, evening, this afternoon, living with Christ as Lord, will mean submitting to the authorities that exist here already and relationships that are already in our lives, but ultimately submitting to Jesus. Now, verse 11 and 12 is, is something of Peter's mission statement. I wonder if you'd recognise um, the mission statement of a couple of big businesses. See if you can. It's our goal to be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they want to buy online. It's Amazon. To create a better everyday life for the many people. That's Ikea. To give everyone the powers to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. That's Twitter. To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. 
if you have a body, you are an athlete. That's Nike. To lead the future of mobility, enriching lives around the world with the safest and most responsible ways of moving people. That's Toyota. See, do you notice in those sentences, they'll often mention something of their method and then the desired effect. We want to be a company that does it like this and we want to be a company that achieves this. But Peter's two sentences reinforce what we've seen in the letter already. Have a look down, verses 11 and 12. goes along the lines of this is not, not this is who we want to be, but this is who we are. Look at verse 11, as foreigners and exiles. That's the language of verse 1 in chapter 1 again. Chosen by God's foreknowledge through the work of the Spirit by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Verse 12, you are among the pagans. We are scattered among people who wouldn't say they follow Jesus. That's a given. As Peter writes firstly to those scattered among um, modern day Turkey, it's a given that that's what we should expect as well. We are foreigners, we are exiles living among those who reject Jesus. So then the method. Look at verse 11. As foreigners and exiles abstain from sinful desires. Verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. Verse 2 of chapter 1 explains how God's people have been chosen in order to be obedient to Christ. See, the follower of Jesus is empowered to choose to not live according to their sinful desires, but to live a good life or to live with Christ as their Lord. That happens an immediate transformation, the, the day the believer's eyes are opened, but it goes on happening. Simply, the believer says, today, chosen by God in a hopeless world, I am an exile. So I'm going to get out there and live differently. Peter is expecting, though, that two things are an absolute given if we follow Jesus. Those two things. So we need to ask ourselves, where am I consistently being a foreigner and an exile? Where am I spending time among the pagans? Or in our language, where am I intentionally spending time with people in Bista and beyond? And secondly, am I abstaining from sinful desires? Am I living a good life? Or am I in danger of acting in a way that doesn't honour God, like the people around me? See, we'll always struggle with both of these two challenges, but the likelihood is we'll tend to one or the other, won't we? Are you more in danger of withdrawing from the world and not being an alien? Are you in danger of existing in your own Christian bubble? Or are you in danger of being just like the world and not abstaining from sin, not living a life that's different. The aim of this strategy then is the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 12, that they may glorify God on the day he visits us. The real hope that we have is that this is one way in which God chooses to open people's eyes through the faithful witness of those who follow Jesus they will see that there's something different. 
Peter, though, he reminds his readers of the reality because the mission is clear, the tactics are clear, but the reality is they may accuse you of doing wrong. Peter isn't blissfully unaware that our societies, our workplaces, even our homes are broken, broken places. The reality is that if we choose to honour Christ, the people we live alongside in society, at work, even at home, will literally tell us we've got it wrong. When we hold out in our society the truth about gender at the moment, our, our culture will say we've literally got it wrong. When we hold out Jesus' claim that he's the only way to God, our friends will literally tell us we've got it wrong. So Peter sets out his mission statement for exiles living. Submit to Jesus and live as witnesses to him in a hopeless world. And then he goes on to illustrate it in three pretty specific scenarios. But what he writes at the beginning of this first section in 13 onwards tells us of his priority. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. That's the order that Peter goes on to repeatedly reinforce. Fear the Lord above all else. Submit to Jesus in these given situations. And in doing so, respect and honour the places that you've been put and the authority there. It's repeated throughout. Submit for the Lord's sake. Live as God's slaves. Fear God. In fear of God do this. Fear God. Five times. See, as we submit and as we act in different um, scenarios, it's important that we remember that we must first of all fear God. So then these three scenarios, submit to Jesus and live as witnesses to him in society. What maybe slightly surprises us there, that we should submit to the law of the land, was most offensive to the people that, at the time. There's four people mentioned there, have a look in verse 17. Everyone, the emperor, Christians, and then God. And the command is, honour everyone, honour the emperor, love Christians, fear God. See, it would have been outrageous to say, honour everyone and honour the emperor. To use the same word in how they deal with both parties. But again, Peter stresses that it's, God that we should fear above all else. But in doing so, we should submit to the law of the land. We should submit to the law of the land until it compromises the lordship of Christ because we must fear God above all else. I wonder what that looks like for us now, really. Whether it's paying tax. See, even if we disagree with the concept, even if we disagree with where it's going, even if we disagree with who's um, deciding where it's going, we have a duty in fear of God to honour that law. And that's a potentially easy one to get round and not pay tax correctly. But for the most part, whether we abide by the actual law isn't the issue. We don't go around breaking many laws, but I wonder, how do you interact with politics at the moment, particularly? How do we speak about our laws and our lawmakers? The way you hold yourself in society, the way you treat those in authority, 
does that undermine the Lordship of Christ in your life and in your witness? Or do you generally, generously go out into areas of culture and society in obedience to Christ and submit to the governing authorities, whether that be simply as a member of the local library or the way you operate down the street in a sports club or on a neighbourhood watch group? The way you operate in areas of life shows up whether or not you submit to the Lordship of Christ. Will you submit to Jesus and bear wit witness to him as you interact with governing powers in this world? Secondly, then, we have a look at work. Submit to Jesus and live as witnesses to him in work. See, we saw a couple of weeks ago, a living hope enables us to live gloriously now. We don't leave behind the cross when we accept Jesus. That means then living as a Christian transforms the way we even do our work. Verse 24 and 25 shows us the example of Jesus avoiding a sinful response to injustice, to ultimately go to the cross. Now, that is an example for us to follow, but it's not just an example, because Jesus' death on the cross brings that living hope now. It transforms us in our death to sins and being al made alive for righteousness. So in, in, the, in the face of unjust treatment at work, in culture, we are able to live distinctive God-honouring lives. Have a look at verse 24. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. Again, it shows our witness to God. In fear of God and obedience to Christ, do you submit to your boss at work? Do you work hard in the work you've been given? Do you work hard even when you resent your manager? Do you work hard even when you resent the system that you work in? Do you honour Jesus when you are treated badly? Or is it that when those things happen, when it all goes to pot, that you're tempted to say, ah, well now, if it's like this towards me, now I'm going to play by the wor world's rules. Now I'm going to give them what they had coming. You're tempted to do as little as you can to get away with not working that hard. A member of my last church had been working for the same business for most of his working life. He was in a great position, he was contributing much to the company, and he was pretty valued by them as well. The business seemed to be thriving, but quickly the, the business began to take a turn. The signs were showing, there was re redundancies, there was hushed conversations, there was changes. It was when he was given the bad news that in order to continue his job, he'd need to work at pretty much half pay, that things began to get difficult. With children in school and a mortgage to pay, the money wasn't going to be enough. But he decided to battle on for the company. He worked hard at work. The family took a hit. They had to move house and make cuts. They had to deal with stress. He worked long hours. 
Employees were jumping ship. The director took a massive payoff and retired. But he continued to work. Why on earth would he continue to work in a company like that? The world says, just jump ship, do what you need to do. Surely he stayed because somewhere in play was a conviction that submitting to Jesus in the way you work is most important. What a distinctive witness what that was to those that he worked alongside. What a distinctive witness that was to those friends that he spoke about work to. I wonder, will you submit to Jesus and bear witness to him within your work context? And submitting to Jesus as witnesses to him in the home. Now the context for the instructions to the families is that particularly for the wives that were coming to trust in Jesus in an unbelieving marriage. The temptation for them was to say, look, I submit to God now as my final authority. I'm going to leave behind the duties of being in my family. The call was that whilst they'd been transformed to be obedient to Christ, they still have responsibility in those given situations. Look at verse 1. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. Do you see, the strategy is exactly the same as verse 11 and 12 in the mission statement that Peter gives us. Submit to Jesus, live for him, and yet still commit to submitting in the place where you are. Why? Well, with the aim that they may be won over. Again, it's the call that when we accept Jesus, we don't just neglect our responsibilities or take liberties or assert authority where we shouldn't. It doesn't suddenly give us license to grasp at power. That's where the example of Jesus is so powerful in the section before. See what it said? He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's where it goes on to say wives in the same way, husbands in the same way. We're to follow the example there of Christ. It's a similar thing when a teenager becomes a Christian um, in a non-believing family. The teenager admits that no longer are their, pe- their parents the biggest um, call on their lives. They don't make all the decisions. Now often there's re- um, resistance and friction from the parents and it's difficult to work through. But the temptation is for the teenager especially to say, well, I don't really submit to my parents anymore. I submit to God. I'm going to sack off all their rules and all their discipline. But actually, the Bible, of course, calls them to honour their parents still. So the believer is called to submit to Christ. And in turn, that should make us better children, better wives, better husband, better brothers, better sisters in the families that we've been placed, even amongst those who wouldn't believe the same as us, even amongst those who'd claim that we're completely mad for what we believe, even amongst those 
who say we're doing the wrong thing. The call to submit to Jesus will transform us to live more effectively in that place. Will you submit to Jesus and bear witness to him at home? Just notice in those three examples, the application is that as free people, we're to be obedient to Christ. And we're not to just reject authority that exists. It doesn't mean we're to reject our position in society, in our culture, in family. But the narrative the world feeds is that if you're hurt by society, if you're hurt by a decision that the government's made, if you're hurt at work, if you're hurt by a spouse or in family, then you just go ahead and do what you need to do to sort it out. You speak about them uh, as you need to. That's the, that's the norm in our society. The world says if you don't agree with a certain political figure's opinion, it's okay to ignore them, to make jokes about them, to hate them. The world says if you're not a big fan of your boss, then go for it, speak behind their back. Take days off work sick when you don't need to. Leave when you want. The world says, if your partner isn't treating you well, it's your right to manipulate them. But in the places that we live, where we feel fundamentally different to culture, we're called to be different. We're called to stay there and live out Christ as Lord. And actually, that will look like transforming those places. Our ultimate aim is not to make this world and our areas of influence a better place. Our ultimate aim is to honour Christ. But, our, but we should expect that as we submit to Christ as Lord, we'll be more generous members of society, we'll be more diligent workers and more loving and servant-hearted family members. We'll expect that ultimately people may come to trust in Christ because of how we've submitted to him. But at the very same time, because we live in this hopeless world, we should expect people to not recognise, not accept, not agree with the way that we operate. The primary application for those three um, places was submitting in the society, workplace or home that doesn't fear God. It's expected that that will be the landscape in which we operate. As exiles, we should expect to be in those places. We'll all, all face that in culture, in an, increasing, in an increasingly anti-Christian ethical landscape, as we interact with law that changes. We'll face it in friendship groups that just don't get us in organisations that promote other ethics. Most will face that in the workplace. Some will face that in their own homes and in their wider family. But in light of the fact that the ultimate aim is to submit to Jesus as Lord, we mustn't just switch off from that when we're around Christians. Our call is to submit to Jesus as Lord all the time. 
Just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine the day that the Lord Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. And however practically that day works out, imagine you get a glimpse of someone that you know, someone that you like, but has given you friction, given you a hard time for standing up for Jesus. Imagine just catching a glimpse of them, that family member, that boss, that neighbour, that colleague, that person that you desperately wanted to come to know Jesus, but they laughed in your face. They told you you were wrong about it all. As you can't catch a glimpse of them, they seem desperate to come and see you and speak to you. But you think, it's all too late. Why didn't you just believe me before? Imagine you just get that chance to have a brief conversation. They come and find you and they say, don't worry. I have trusted Jesus. They say, I looked at you and could see you had a sure hope. You did the right thing even when no one was watching, when you had been wronged. I could see that you were living for Jesus and I wanted to meet him too. Just look back at verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these instructions, but thank you that you call us to be foreigners and exiles. Thank you that you call us to live among people that don't yet trust in you. Because, Father, thank you for that, because that was first us. And, Lord, we ask that as we live for you with a sure hope of the future, that those people around us, in our culture, in our families, in our workplace, that just don't get it, that disagree, that don't want to come and hear anything about Jesus. Lord, we ask that the way that you would have us live, the way that you're transforming us to submit to Jesus might speak volumes to them. And Lord, we ask that that might eventually mean that there are more people that come to trust in you because of the way that you use us. Amen.